Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. We've been looking at Jesus in the temple courts. He's been there for a while by our time. Lots of talking to big crowds. Uh, the religious leaders have been trying to trap him in his words. They've been trying to undermine his credibility. Last week we saw him leaving the temple and he pronounces this word of destruction over the temple. Not one stone on this of this structure is going to be left standing on uh, another stone prophesying the complete destruction of the temple, which actually happens in 70 AD. And then he pulls away with his disciples and he explains to them, here's, here's the timing around that and here's how you'll know when this is going to happen. So that's where we've been. Today we're going to pick up in chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So now we're just a couple of days before this major festival, the Passover. It was the, most, it was the holiest meal that the Jewish people ate during the year. It, it was a looking back at the exodus when God delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. The idea of Passover, they, in Exodus, you can go back and read it, it's Exodus 12. A lamb was sacrificed and the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts of the Israelites' homes. And so the angel of death passed over their homes on that night. And he, that angel of death visited all the homes of the Egyptians and killed uh, the firstborn in every one of those homes. So the Passover is looking back at that and looking forward to God delivering the, the nation again. The festival of, the unle- of unleavened bread, that coincided with Passover. It was a seven-day festival. Uh, you didn't eat anything that had leaven or yeast in it uh, as a reminder of how quickly the Israelites had to leave on that Passover night. So both of those things are happening and the, the religious leaders, you can see they've decided, they're scheming. We, we've got to figure out how to arrest Jesus so we can kill him. But, but a lot of these people think highly of him. And we don't want to start a riot. If we start a riot, then the Romans are going to come down on all of us. So they're trying to figure out exactly how to do that. Skip down to verse 10. We, we looked at the story of Mary anointing Jesus A couple of weeks ago, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. This seems to be the thing that shifts for the religious leaders. Verse 1 and 2, they want to arrest Jesus. They don't know how because they don't want to start a riot. And now Judas comes to him, and it seems like now they have an idea. We don't actually know what Judas betrayed. Best guess is he betrayed the location where Jesus would be during a time when the crowds would not be around. So as we'll read through, we'll see Jesus betray, or excuse me, Judas betrays Jesus at night, uh, takes him out to the garden where Jesus is with the disciples. And that seems to be the information that Judas has that then allows the religious leaders to arrest Jesus in a way that doesn't start a riot. They're able to arrest him privately, quietly. Uh, we don't know why Judas betrayed Jesus. We all want to know. We're not, we're not told. Uh, the, the best scripturally, the, the most solid place to land is because of greed. That's not very satisfying to us, just greed. But people have done a lot of bad things for money. And, and Judas, again, it, it seems like greed is at least a driver. In Matthew's version of this story, he goes to the religious leaders and says, What will you give me? 
if I hand them over to you. Judas was the treasurer, and according to John, he'd been skimming money out of the common purse that Jesus and the disciples had. So money certainly seems to be one of the motivators for Judas. If you want to speculate, like if that's just not satisfying enough. So some people have a theory, and it's, it's based just on Judas's name. This is a lot to hang on just somebody's name. But based on his name, there's a theory that Judas was a revolutionary and that he had grown really disillusioned with Jesus as a, as a suffering Messiah. He was tired of Jesus saying, I'm going to have to suffer and die. And then when Mary anoints Jesus, that's the last straw for him. When he says, she's anointing me for my burial, he's done. And so either he, 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 he betrays Jesus in order to provoke a confrontation to kind of make Jesus flex his muscles, or he's decided at that point, Jesus is a fraud. And he's, and he's just, again, so, so disillusioned with him, he's, he's, he's done. So, again, that, that's a lot to put on somebody's last name. But based on that last name, Iscariot, some people have drawn those conclusions. Again, that's just speculation. We don't know exactly why he betrayed him, just that he did. Next verse. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, so this is the next day, after Jesus has been anointed by Mary, after Judas has decided to betray the religious leaders and has gone to them and, and told him that he would do that. So on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So again, the Passover, most solemn, holy meal that the Jews would eat over the course of the year. And there, there, was, there were guidelines around it. And one of them was you had to eat the Passover in the city of Jerusalem, within the walls. And so you have all of these pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem, not just to, to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, but also to eat this meal in the city. And so if you lived in the city and you had an extra room, you were expected to make it available. You've got tens of thousands of people coming and they've got to eat in the city. And so if you had everybody's Airbnb for Passover night. And so the, Jesus, they're staying in Bethany a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And so he tells two of his disciples, we know from another one of the accounts, it's Peter and John, go into Jerusalem and get everything set up for us. Again, because the meal has to be eaten in Jerusalem. And so you can either go supernatural knowledge or Jesus prepared it beforehand. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the piece there is that Jesus is the host of the meal. So there's a man carrying a water jar. That was women's work. So seeing a man with a water jar, it could be like a secret sign. And so he says, go and find that guy. Again, either, either the father told Jesus, hey, here's this guy and he's ready. Or Jesus had, had met this guy previously and had arranged things with him. We're, we're coming to your house and we're going to eat the Passover in the extra room that you have. Again, you can, you can decide which one of those two things you think happened. The, the teaching point or the truth point for us is Jesus is the host of the meal. Peter and John are working out the details, but Jesus has already set everything up. There was specific food that had to be eaten, so maybe there's a sense in which Peter and John are gathering that food as well so that the disciples will have what they need for the meal. 
Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as, as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. So there's a pattern to Passover. There's four parts of the meal. There's this opening blessing of the gathering. And then the youngest son would say to the father, Dad, why is this night different from all the others? And then the dad would tell the story of the Exodus. And the food all has meaning. There's a roasted lamb, and that lamb reminds them of the Passover lamb that was their ancestors killed. And, put, and, and it, it, it was killed in place of their firstborn. And they eat bitter herbs, which remind them of the bitterness of slavery, and stewed fruit, which reminds them of the mud that, it, that they made bricks with, and unleavened bread because they had to leave in such a hurry. And so we, we've talked about this before. The idea of remembrance in the Bible is not just recollecting the past. It's recollecting the past with a sense of, of that past shaping how you're going to live in the present. And so there's this looking back and this looking forward with Passover. And so the dad, that's like the host, of, so in this case it's Jesus, he, that, that question is asked and then they're explaining and teaching Passover, you think about our special meals, like maybe Christmas dinner and Easter dinner. We have some of the trappings of a solemn meal. You know, there's a certain menu that many of us eat and, you know, we gather people around the table. We don't necessarily have this part where we're explaining why we do what we do. But that was part of it for the Jewish people. And they've been doing that for, for 2,000 years at that point, 1,000 years at that point, 1,500 years, somewhere in there. 1,500 years they've been doing that at this point. And so in the midst of that, so the third part is the blessing and the eating of the food. And then the last part is a singing of Psalms 113 to 118. And during that third part, the eating of the food, Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And that's a showstopper that highly, you know, just like it would be unusual for, for you if you're eating with 10 or 12 of your closest companions for somebody to say, hey, somebody in this group is going to betray somebody else in this group. Same for them, but it's heightened. Food is, uh, sharing a meal is a sign of, of relationship, highly, highly irregular to betray someone that you're expressing friendship to by eating with them. And so the 12, they all want to know who it is. We know who it is because we just read who it was. Judas knows who it is, but the other 11 don't. So they're all asking the question. Who, we, who is it? And Jesus doesn't tell. And you have this, this uh, when Jesus talks about the betrayer, you've got this, this weaving together of the, the sovereignty or the providence of God. This is how it's written. That's Isaiah 41.9 talks about the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant who will be betrayed by someone who eats with him. And you also have the, the freedom that Judas, Judas makes his own choice. He's not a victim God didn't make Judas betray Jesus. Judas did that of his own volition. We're not held responsible for choices that we didn't make. This is a choice that Judas made. And we'll see that playing out in a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I don't really know how you get the meal back on track after a statement like that. 
but they do. Think about it. Like, what do you, if you're the host, how do you get everybody back? But they do. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and we given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they'd sung a hymn, that's one of those psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So at this point, Jesus breaks from the Passover pattern in a very uh, profound way. I don't think there's any way the disciples understood what Jesus was saying there. We have the rest of the New Testament, which, which unpacks that for us. Just those two simple phrases, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. Those two simple statements change everything. They change everything. Because in those two statements and what they represent, Jesus is establishing a new covenant. Again, which is earth-shaking. It's all we've ever known is the new covenant. But if you're, if you're there for the, and you're hearing this, again, I, you, I don't think you can get your mind around what Jesus has just said. Now, for us, the idea of covenant, I think, is pretty difficult for us to grasp. We're not a covenantal people. We're a contractual people. And a contract and a covenant are not the same thing. They have some similarities, but they're not the same. A covenant, it's a relationship between two parties where you're basically saying we're family now. With all of the benefits and all of the responsibilities that come along with being Family, all of the blessings and all of the obligations that come with being family. In a covenant, the way we see it played out in the Bible, it's, it's holy. God is involved. There, there's a, there's a, a swearing of oaths. You'll see that throughout the Old Testament in particular. When someone makes a, a covenant, in our language, it's always, so help me God. They're bringing God into the mix in a way that, that you don't with a contract. You see behind me some of the differences there. I'm not going to go through those. But maybe that helps you begin to see, again, the, the difference between the two. We're a contractual people. We're a letter of the law kind of people. The, that, that's, not, that's not covenantal. The, the closest thing we have to a covenant in our world is marriage. And even now, that's become much more of a contract than a covenant. The, the key idea, and there's a, there's a lot that to unpack that we don't have time to, the key idea, it's, it's family. Just think about it that way. It's a solemn relationship where you're agreeing to be family with someone else, with all that that entails, not in the casual way that we would say we're family. In a very deep, again, getting God involved, so help me God if I don't treat you like family. So help you, God, if you don't treat me like family. Again, with all of the blessings and all of the responsibilities that, are, that, that come with saying we're now family. And Jesus is establishing a new one of those. So the, the major way, I would say, I, I don't want to say the only way, but I'll say the primary way. I think only is probably a better word, but we'll say primary just in case. Is the way that God relates to us is through covenant. You can see that particularly in the Old Testament. The word is used much more often in the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Israel through Moses. That's the one that we tend to think about. 
When we talk about the old covenant, that's the one that we're talking about, the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. He makes a covenant with David. And then we see Jesus here instituting a new covenant. That covenant is the way that God deals with people. And Jesus is saying here with those two simple statements, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. He's establishing a new way that God is going to deal with his people. Revolutionary. Again, two simple statements. If you want to know more about covenant, and I would encourage you, it, it takes some work, but I would, it's worth it. There's three books that you can read. The, the, I would read Deuteronomy. It's a renewal of the covenant. So the covenant that God made in Exodus with Moses on Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments and all that, is renewed 40 years later in Deuteronomy, right before uh, the Israelites enter into the promised land. It's almost like a reminder. Hey, I'm about to give you this promised land. Here's the relationship that we set up. And in that moment, Israel says, yes, we're, we're in. The book of Hosea, which is a dramatic lived parable of covenant. God says to Hosea, I want you to marry an unfaithful woman. And he does. And then she's unfaithful. And he says, now I want you to go back and get her. It's a picture of our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to us. And then the book of Hebrews, which can be confusing. Verses one, or excuse me, chapters one through 10 that focus on the new covenant and how the new covenant is superior to the old. If you don't have a great concept of covenant, and most of us don't, we just don't live in a covenantal community, society, those three books can help you begin to put those pieces together. And I think, and if you say, why does it matter? It matters because it's how God relates to us. And you want to know that. You want to know how God relates to you. So anyway, that old covenant, that covenant that God makes with Israel through Moses and he says, you're going to be, I'm going to be your God and, and you're going to be my people. And here's what that means. Here's what it means for me to be your God. And he lists here are all of these blessings that come with God being our God. And you're going to be my people. And here are the responsibilities that come with you being my people. And then here's the discipline that comes if you break covenant with me. You could look at the Old Testament. I don't think this is unfair. The Old Testament as a record of the unfaithfulness of God's people and the faithfulness of God. The covenant breaking of God's people and the covenant keeping of God. And the covenant keeping includes discipline or, or punishment or judgment, whatever words you want to use. If God doesn't follow through on the consequences, then he actually is breaking covenant. If he said, here's the consequences of you breaking covenant, and then he doesn't follow through with that, that actually makes him a covenant breaker. But he's always faithful. And that, that story plays out. You can see it playing out particularly from Judges through the end of the Old Testament. It's this cycle of Israel breaking covenant, God disciplining them, Israel repenting and renewing covenant. And then we do it again, and then we do it again, and then we do it again. And towards the end, chronologically of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, he's living through it's called a covenant curse. You'll see those when you read Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 27, 28, somewhere in there. There's this list of covenant curses. And the most profound is I'm going to kick you all out of this land. I'm giving you this land. That's a covenant blessing. But I'm going to kick you out if you are unfaithful to the covenant, if you break it. And Jeremiah is living through the brutality and the, 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 the tragic nature of this covenant curse. Israel is being 
exiled from the land, God's people. They're being kicked out. The temple's being destroyed. Jerusalem's being overrun. There's no more king. And Jeremiah's living in the midst of that dumpster fire. And God speaks to him a word of hope. Hey, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be like that one. I'm going to make a new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. You've probably heard this before. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You got that. So he's saying, it's not going to be like the one I made through Moses on Mount Sinai. It's not going to be like that one anymore. I kept my end of the covenant. I was a husband to them. They were unfaithful to me. If you read Hosea, that's the picture. Faithful husband, unfaithful wife. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's a new way of relating. God is initiating. He's like, he's, we're the ones that break the covenant. And he's initiating and instituting a new one. We screwed up and he's fixing it. That's covenant. The basis of covenant is love. And again, you see that running through all of the Old Testament. We're contractual people. At the most, we're like three strikes and you're out. How many times do you let somebody not do what, they're say, what they say they're going to do? Before you're done with them. Read the Old Testament. Time after time after time. God upholds his end. We fail in upholding our end. And rather than doing what he could. And maybe even what he should. He says I'm going to make a new covenant. Y'all can't keep the old one. I'm going to make a new one. And it's better. It's better than the old one. Why is it better? At least three reasons. It's better because it's the nature of it. It's internal. It's not external. The law is not written on tablets of stone. The big, the top 10 plus the 603 other commands that are attached to that. The law is written on our hearts. So that's, the, that's the requirements of the covenant. Every covenant has requirements. This is what it means to be in relationship. And for the new covenant, there's two. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those laws, those covenant requirements, stipulations are written on our hearts. And it's not just that we internalize that truth. The Holy Spirit lives within us and he moves us to keep those laws. Again, think about that. Here's your responsibility. I'm your God, you're my people. Here's what it means for you to be my people. Oh, wait, you can't do it. So I'm going to do it through you. Amazing. The covenant is now internal, not external. The law is written on our hearts. It's not something we carry on our backs. The Holy Spirit moves us to obey. We don't have to do that in our own strength and power. We have to make a choice 100%. 
but we're enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because of the, it's an invitation to deeper relationship with God. Think about the way the temple was organized, set up. You had the court of Gentiles, and then you had the court of women, and then you had the court of men, and then you had the court of priests, and then you had the Holy of Holies. And the only guy that could go in there was the, was the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. And I don't know that he liked it. They tied a rope around his ankle in case he died in the, when he was doing his job. They could pull him out because you can go in and get him or you die too. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, the temple wasn't necessarily, I don't want to say it was designed to keep people out, but it certainly communicated you can't come in. You're not ready. You're not ready for this. I'm a holy God and you're not a holy people. If I let you in, my holiness will kill you. I love you, and my holiness will kill you. So stay out. The new covenant is completely different. Go through and count the number of times in the Old Testament you see the word father versus new. God was a father in the Old Testament, but it wasn't, it wasn't emphasized. There was a distance. The, the high priest and him only once a year could enter into the Holy of Holies. And what Hebrews says to us, all of you can come in, each one of you. Men, women, young, old, Jew, Gentile, clergy, not, it doesn't matter. Because of the blood of Jesus, every one of you can come near. Think about when Jesus dies and that curtain is ripped from the top to the bottom. That's God ripping it. That divides the holy place from the most holy place. We all have access to him as our father. The new covenant is better because it invites us into a deeper relationship. That language of adoption is covenantal language. He's our father. We're his sons. We're his daughters. The language of brother and sister, that's covenantal language. You are the brother or the sister of Jesus. Think about that, who he is and what it is to be in his family. The new covenant is better because it deals with our sins fully and finally and completely. In the old, under the old covenant, every year you had to bring an animal and sacrifice it at the temple for forgiveness of all the sins that you committed the previous year. None of you have ever done that. None of us have ever. We don't have to do that. We wouldn't even know where to begin. We don't have to do that. Jesus died once and for all. And our sins have been blotted out erased, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Hebrews says that this annual bringing of an animal to the temple for a sacrifice, it actually just reminds you of your sins. That's what it does. The blood of a bull or a goat, even though it was prescribed by the law, it couldn't cleanse your heart. Maybe your hands, but not your heart. But the blood of Jesus does that, does both, hands and heart. God doesn't remember your sins, and you don't have to either. This new covenant is better because our sins are dealt with completely and fully. Because we're invited into a deeper relationship with God. Because it's internal, not external. We're going to close with communion. The way we take communion, we'll come forward a row at a time, break a piece of bread, and dip it in the juice. See this as a... this is. 
in a sense, what we could call this kind of a covenant renewal for us. This is, an, this is, a, this is a, a, a remembrance, 1 Corinthians 11 says, of Jesus' death. And Jesus' death for us instituted this new covenant. That word is that we read, this is my body, this is my blood. People have been fighting about that for 2,000 years. And the irony is it's not even, <laughs> Jesus was Aramaic, or Jesus spoke Aramaic, and they don't even have a word for is. But we fuss, we fuss about it. He just said, this my body and this my blood. That's what he said. So we got choices. Some people say that bread and that juice, it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. It changes its essence. It's no longer bread and juice. It's, it's literally the body and the blood of Jesus. There's some people on the way other end who say there's no way. So they swing way to the other way and say it's, just, it's, a, it's a symbol of the body in the blood of Jesus. It's, just, it's a symbol. It represents him. We want to land somewhere in the middle. We want to call it a sacrament, a means of God's grace, a doorway to the grace of God. And there's mystery around that. I don't know how taking bread and dipping it in juice and eating it, I don't know how that opens us up to the grace of God. But somehow it does. And so as we take communion this morning, I want you in your heart to recognize this, this is a doorway to God's grace. Just real quick tangent, why don't we use, people have asked, why don't we use wine? Well, it doesn't matter, but the reason that we don't is there are people that have deep convictions about alcohol and we don't want them to be offended. There are people who are struggling in sobriety and we don't want them to be tempted. And there are people who want their children to participate and we want them to be able to do that with a clear conscience. So that's why we use juice, but it doesn't matter. For us, as you come forward and you take this bread and dip it in the juice or take that gluten-free bread and dip it in the juice, I want you to say, hey, this, this is a door. I'm opening a door in my heart to the grace of God. That idea of remembering, I'm remembering what Jesus did, but I'm not just recollecting it. I'm recalling it in order to allow that to shape my now. So where do you need the grace of God in your life right now? Some of you feel guilty. And you need to be reminded your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And so when you come forward and take this communion, you need to say, God, I need your grace to walk in the freedom of the forgiveness that you have made available to me. Some of you are hurting and you need grace to continue in your suffering. His grace is sufficient for you and you need that grace today. Some of you are sick. You need his healing grace. Some of you are anxious and fearful and you need his peace. Some of you are lost and you need direction. I don't, I don't know. There's none of us without need. And communion is an opportunity to open our hearts through this physical act to the grace of God. And so that's what I want us to do. So like I, nobody likes being in the front. I get it. So I don't, I'm trying to think about how to talk about this so you don't feel on the spot. So, so some of you, it's almost like a sprint. How quickly can I grab this and get back to my seat? And that, like, I, I mean, I do understand. And we do need everybody to get through. But I would, I would love for you to maybe just slow down just a bit. Some of you take it back to your seat. 
which is, that's fine if you want to do that. I, just, I want there to be at least a, a beat of reflection, just a beat of, God, I need, I'm opening my heart to your grace through this act in this particular place. Just that, just a beat to allow him to do that. Is that okay? And then we'll have teams here. If you want prayer, we would love to pray with you. You can kneel uh, here if you would like. Our communion teams, if y'all could just stand maybe just a little bit in the front so people could get behind you and kneel and others wouldn't trip over their legs. Um, We'll we'll just do that. And we've got enough time, I think, that we can can take a a, a second as we're taking communion. I want to lead you through a prayer, and then we're going to pray a prayer corporately. Bo, you can come back, and those of you who are helping with communion, y'all and ministry teams, you guys can take your spot. I want you thinking about that idea of covenant. It's cliche for us. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And can you hear... The privilege in that. Uh, I'll dwell with you is what God is saying to us. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's the culmination of this new covenant. I'm going to dwell with you. That's the invitation. And for us to begin to experience that now. So we want to just take a a second and ask the Lord to search us, show us if there's any area in our life or heart where we're living disobediently to him, where we're resisting him. Holy Spirit, would you do that? You just pray that in your own heart. Would you bring conviction in the places where we're living independently of you, where we're resisting your leadership? something comes to your mind, just confess that. Recognize those sins have already been forgiven. We look back on the cross. But we want to walk in that forgiveness now. Allowing the reality of the past to shape our present. First John says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So anything you confess, no, it's been forgiven, blotted out. So as you come forward, you're doing so with clean hands and a clean heart. As you take communion, again, recognize this is a doorway of God's grace into your life. And again, there's mystery there, but in faith, as you... Under as you participate and do this physical act, there's spiritual reality going on underneath it and through it and behind it and above it. This is a reminder of covenant. Again, it's a looking back that shapes our now. He's your God. You're his son or his daughter. So approach him accordingly. This morning, God, help us to do that.
our rational, logical, material minds. Would you help us embrace the mystery of this sacrament of communion? Would you pour your grace into each one of our hearts and lives in the places where it's most needed? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand, and we're going to pray this prayer. This is a prayer that John Wesley wrote about covenant. So this is, you know, God is saying, I'm your God, and we're saying, we're your people. And this is what it means to be his people. So let's pray this out loud together. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine. I am yours. So be it. And let the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 